Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies and TV shows with history. On today's episode, we're going to learn about History Channel's TV show, Project Blue Book. The show stars Aidan Gillen as Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a university professor hired by the United States government to investigate UFOs. Whether or not you believe in UFOs, that doesn't change the fact that there have been some incredible events that have been reported and researched by the U.S. government throughout history. Right now, or I should say as I'm recording this, the History Channel is in the middle of the second season of Project Blue Book. Today, we're going to look at the historical accuracy of the events that we saw in the first season. To do that, I'm joined by UFO expert Rob Christofferson. Rob is the host of the Our Strange Skies podcast that dives into stories and the history behind UFOs, as well as a brand new show called The Coda. Before we chat with Rob, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Project Blue Book was the first time the U.S. government investigated unidentified flying objects. Number two, former Nazi scientist Werner von Braun teamed up with Walt Disney to promote the American space program after World War II. Number three, Dr. Hynek made a cameo appearance in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind which was named after the scale he came up with. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Rob on the line to chat about the TV show Project Blue Book. I'd like to start by setting the stage for Dr. J. Allen Hynek and his work on Project Blue Book. According to the TV show, Dr. Hynek was an astrophysics teacher at Ohio State before he's recruited by the U.S. Air Force to investigate flying saucers, what they called Project Blue Book. Now, there's one little bit of dialogue in the show where they give a very vague reason as to why they picked Dr. Hynek. And it's when General James Harding tells Captain Michael Quinn that Hynek, quote, did some things for us in the war, end quote. (laughs) So not a lot of details there about that. Uh, But they do give some details about why they started Project Blue Book itself. Now, the reason that the show gives for that was because there are Hollywood movies about aliens coming out and the public knows something's going on, but no one knows exactly what, including the government, according to the show. So they want to find out. But they also want to cover it up. We get the sense from the show that the military picked Hynek because of his scientific background, because he's not in the military. They're hoping that they can give a little bit of some scientific proof to the public for flying saucers that's outside of the military. Now, in the show, Dr. Hynek agrees to join Project Blue Book on three conditions. 
One is that he stays on staff at Ohio State. Two is he gets a paycheck from the government, some extra money for his family. And three is that he gets recognition for whatever he finds. So that is, according to this TV show, kind of setting all of this up. How well do you think the show did depicting the way that Dr. Hynek got involved in Project Blue Book? Dr. Hynek's joining Project Blue Book was kind of a matter of convenience almost. So when Project Blue Book comes into being in late 1951, this is essentially the government's third attempt to study the UFO phenomenon. And Dr. J. Allen Harnick was part of the government's first UFO study, which was called Project Sign. Sign commenced in January of 1948 and was shuttered later that year. He joined the project in the spring of 48 for a few different reasons. Uh, he was, at the time, the director of the observatory at Ohio State University. All of the government's UFO projects were run out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which was about 60 miles away from him. And Hynek already had a high security clearance from his work on the proximity fuse during World War II, which is what they kind of allude to him doing things for us during the war. And when you factor in all of these things, Hynek was kind of the guy. They needed an astronomer to rule out any kind of astronomical explanation that there could be for the sightings. And uh, he was a perfect guy to do it. So as our good friend Sam stated on the Not Alone podcast, right place, right time, right Patterson Air Force Base. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so when Hynek took the job, he believed that this would be a quick one. He was pretty sure that what the UFO phenomenon was at the time was just Cold War nerves, World War II latent nerves, you know, stuff left over. So one of the most important cases that Hynek worked on uh, and that will come full circle for his involvement in Project Blue Book is a case involving a pilot by the name of Thomas F. Mantell, who died while in pursuit of a UFO in January of 1948. Mantell and a few other pilots were taxiing planes from Marietta, Georgia to Standiford Field in Kentucky. And while they were doing that, Godman Air Force Base, which was located near Fort Knox, had received a few unidentified blips on their radar and asked Mantell and his crew of a few other pilots to go investigate it. Well, Mantell pursued the object, but unfortunately, he didn't have oxygen on board, so when his plane climbed too high, he suffered from hypoxia, which basically caused him to crash his plane. Heineck was the one that kind of made his determination on this case, and he claimed that he was chasing the planet Venus. So really just kind of debunking mentality. And that was at the start of Project Sign. That was the mentality that uh, J. Allen Heineck had. Project Sign was basically shuttered largely because of a document called the Estimate of the Situation, which basically said that these crafts were extraterrestrial in origin. No surviving copy of this document exists, though. Like The generals that this report went to basically said, you have to destroy every single one of these documents. There's no way that we're going to the president or anybody with this kind of information. So... No surviving copy has ever been found, but there have been people to, who have attested to it, including Dr. Heineck himself. 
Sign was shuttered and was reactivated as Project Grudge. Now, Grudge was strictly a debunking campaign. They downplayed reports and at times just threw them out, didn't even bother to investigate them. Grudge officially lasted for about a year, but they kind of kept somebody on staff so that if somebody did want to report UFO sightings too, there there would be somebody there. And that guy's name was Lieutenant Jerry Cummings. And in 1951, there was a sighting at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, and Air Force personnel witnessed a disc-shaped object. Uh, and a report was fl- uh, filed, but was ultimately dismissed by Cummings under the directive that he had been working with. And this report made its name to a general by the name of C.P. Cabell, who requested to see the report and didn't really like the looks of it. He didn't feel like people were being honest with him. And Cummings basically told him how the project had been handled up to this point, that it was there just to debunk reports. And at that point, Cabell got pretty angry. He ordered that Project Grudge be reactivated in full force. Unfortunately, Cummings was on his way out back to his civilian life, so he got a gentleman by the name of Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the first Project Blue Book head to spearhead this project. So Captain Ruppelt was essentially the backup pilot for the crew of the Enola Gay, so if any of the pilots that were involved in that flight couldn't somehow make it for whatever reason, he was the guy that was going to fly that plane. He had worked with Dr. Hynek before on Project Sign. He quickly got in there. He whipped this project into shape, and soon it would be relabeled Project Blue Book. But one of the things that he did was he went back into the old reports just to see what was there, to see how things were ruled. And Ruppelt was the kind of guy who was going to give you his objective opinion. He wanted this to be as an objective study as possible. So. If you leaned either one way to one side or the other, you were kicked off the team. One case report that he looked at was the Thomas F. Mantell case, and he saw that Heineck was the one that made the determination on that one. So he basically called him up and said, I need you to come back in here. We need to reexamine this case. They determined that what Mantell was chasing was a Project Mogul Balloon. This was a newly declassified project as of 1951 that essentially sent up weather balloons with audio equipment attached to them. And they were basically there to detect Soviet atomic bomb tests. And that's basically how Hynek made his way onto Project Blue Book. He stayed after that uh, through the entirety of the project. Just to make sure I'm understanding, there was a captain, because in the, in the show, there's Captain Quinn, and we also meet a couple generals, General Harding and General Valentine are the character names. Were they also, were they based on those those generals and the captain that you were referring to, or are they just completely fictional? They're inspired. For instance, Captain Quinn is kind of based on two Project Blue Book heads, Edward Ruppelt, like I mentioned, and uh, another one by the name of Colonel Robert Friend, who was a Tuskegee Airman. And he served, I think, for about a year, but he had had that Edward Ruppelt mentality, which was they were skeptical, but they wouldn't let their skeptical beliefs really shutter any kind of uh, reports or anything like that, or, you know, 
lead them down a road they didn't think they should be going. And General Valentine, I do believe, is based on General Nathan Twining, who was the general that actually created Project Sign. And he was kind of a figure in the background during the government UFO research project. So he was always kind of there in the background, always kind of got intel. And he's, you know, made some interesting statements on UFOs and such. Uh, There's some fun interviews with him. There's one in which he alludes to UFOs kind of thwarting U.S. forces in Vietnam and stuff like that. It's uh, There's a lot of fun stuff out there. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Well, yeah. OK. I was just curious because obviously Dr. Hynek being real, I was just curious who on the military side of it would have been real. But it sounds like they're more just composite characters, which is very common that we get for movies and TV shows. Yeah, for the most part, the only real-to-life characters on the show are Dr. J. Allen Hynek and his wife, Mimi Hynek. Okay. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You mentioned the pilot there, and that leads right into the next question that I have, because in episode one, it kicks off with something that they call the Fuller Incident. Now, I'm going to assume that's not necessarily the, the same incident that you're referring to, because this, in the show at least, happens in Fargo, North Dakota, and it's named after Lieutenant Henry Fuller, who is the pilot who gets into this dogfight with a flying saucer. According to the show, that was essentially the reason why they started Project Blue Book. And then after the investigation of the incident, Dr. Heine concludes that the object the lieutenant was chasing was nothing more than a weather balloon. And he mentioned something similar to that. So was the Fuller incident that we see in the show that event that you were referring to? Or is that something else? No, that's a little bit different. It, it has some of the hallmarks of the Thomas F. Mantel case, but the Fuller incident is based directly on an incident called the Gorman dogfight. This involved a man by the name of George F. Gorman, who was an Air National Guard pilot out of Fargo, North Dakota. 
And on October 1st, 1948, his squadron was returning from a flight at night. Gorman decided he wanted to stay up in the air for a little bit uh, longer for some night flying practice. And after circling around a football stadium, um, this was around 9 p.m. that night, he was approaching Hector Airport and was notified by the tower that there was a Piper Cub plane below him. He was forced to circle the airport for a short period of time. And on one pass, he saw what he believed to be the taillight of another craft past the Piper Cub plane on his right. It was white in color, blinking in intervals, and approximately six to eight inches in diameter. This object was not registering on radar in any way, but uh, he went in to investigate it. And when Gorman made his approach, the light stopped blinking and basically just took off. Gorman engaged with the object. He pursued it. He found himself outmaneuvered basically at every turn, but was able to get behind it at one point. When he did, the object turned around and flew straight in his direction. It passed right over his canopy and turned around to do it again. But before it seemingly was supposed to make impact, the light abruptly turned upward and shot straight up into the air. Gorman attempted to pursue the object, but it was such a steep climb that his plane stalled out at 14,000 feet. He was able to restart it, though, and land it. So uh, it, it's not like it is, it's depicted in the show. It's, he doesn't crash the plane or anything. Uh, what makes this sighting so powerful is that there were numerous eyewitnesses to it. The two men manning the tower that night, uh, Lloyd D. Jensen and H.E. Johnson attested to the object's fast speed and maneuverability, and the Piper Cub plane, uh, the pilot of it, Dr. A.E. Cannon, also saw the light and testified to basically the same thing. Here's a fun quote from uh, uh, Mr. Gorman. Quote, I am convinced that there was definite thought behind its maneuvering. I am further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid but not immediate. And although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve, end quote. So this case was one of the landmark project sign cases, the other being the death of Thomas F. Mantell. Another account known as the Child's Witted account, which involved two civilian pilots that witnessed basically a long cigar-shaped object fly alongside their plane at night. So that's really what that incident and what that episode was based on. Well, something that happened after this in the show was when Dr. Hynek used the term UFO for the first time. I thought this was funny because when he used it, the uh, Captain Queen character, he kind of looks at him and is like, a what? <laughs> and he, he then he goes on to explain, well, I'm kind of trying to coin this term to explain what we're investigating. Was he the one that actually coined the term UFO? And was it after that incident? No, actually, the, the person that coined the term is, is one of the people that coin is based on, uh, Edward Ruppelt. He actually coined the term in early 52. He was looking for a different term because flying saucer had such a negative uh, connotation associated with it. So he wanted a fresh term to go in with and unidentified flying object is what he came up with. I guess it makes sense, too, because it's you mentioned earlier, you know, a cigar-shaped craft. They're not always saucer-shaped. No. Now, in episode two of the show, 
Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn go to investigate a case in West Virginia where a mother and her children see something strange. This is the case, according to the show, called the Flatwoods Monster because it's not a flying saucer this time or UFO, (laughs) use that term, Uh, but it's also involving a creature of some sort. Maybe an alien creature? Well, that's what Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn are there to find out. Ultimately, Dr. Hynek once again gives a rational explanation for the strange things that were seen. He stands up in front of the town and gives this speech. Uh, Captain Quinn and Dr. Hynek explain that the spaceship they saw was just a meteor. The creature that they saw was a great horned owl. And Dr. Hynek goes on to give a scientific explanation about hot air and cold air causing light to refract in different directions. It's why stars twinkle and mirages are formed in the desert, according to his explanation. And it's also how you can see an owl in a burning forest and think it's a monster. So that's how the the movie, or I'm sorry, not movie, the TV show sets up the Flatwood Monster case. Was that a real investigation? And how well did the show do explaining those events that happened? The Flatwoods Monster case was a real case that took place in September of 1952. And it really is almost something out of a horror movie, especially when you look online at the images that were created once the eyewitnesses described what they were seeing. A group of kids, Eddie and Fred May and Tommy Hayer, witnessed this fireball in the sky in in September of 1952, and they saw it go down in the forest. So they gathered a small group that included the May's mother and Gene Lemon, who was a 17-year-old National Guard member. Lemon led the charge into the forest, and they at first see what they believe is just two lights But the more that they stare at them, the more that they realize that they look more like eyes. And then they see this large, metallic-looking creature. They described it like a spade behind its head, but it was completely red. Apparently, everyone in this group, which consisted of seven, uh, seven people, witnessed this creature. The town was kind of on edge a little bit, but not as bad as they depict it in the show. Project Blue Book really didn't play much of a part in this case. This was really more investigated by civilian UFO groups and independent investigators. One of the most prominent was a an investigator named Gray Barker, who investigated a number of cases, including the famed Mothman flap in uh, West Virginia in 1966 and 1967. But basically, all Project Blue Book did was looked at the sighting of the object in the sky and just basically determined that it was a meteor. They didn't seem to acknowledge the creature at all in their in their files. So, yeah, they didn't really play much of a part, but uh, I did enjoy the depiction of the way that they did things. The skeptics have pointed to an owl in a tree as being the culprit of this, but uh, I don't necessarily buy that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's just, you know, the hot air and the cold air. And <laughs> Well, the cool thing is when Hynek's talking about how stars twinkle, he was the astronomer that discovered how stars twinkle. So it's kind of fitting for him, you know? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sure they pulled that in as, as a little, little nugget there to, for somebody to find. That's cool. The cool thing about this show is that 
his children, Paul, and I think another one of his children actually consult for the show. So it's it has its, you know, dramatic elements, but it's uh, pretty accurate as best as they have been able to contribute. The, there are some mannerisms that Aiden Gillen will do that apparently are the same ones that Dr. Hynek would do. And and uh, they've actually used personal items that J. Allen Hynek and Mimi Hynek had for the characters in the show. So, you know, it's a cool, it's a cool nod. And uh, the show is very respectful of his legacy. I appreciate it for that because he is this really monumental figure in UFO research. Well, let's continue on because there's more episodes that we need to cover. <laughs> After the Flatwoods monster case, we see that Dr. Hynek is, is re- he's taking his role very seriously and he's, he's really trying his best to come up with some scientific rationale behind both the Fuller incident and the Flatwoods monster. But then the next case is the Lubbock Lights and that's when things start to change as far as the show is concerned. And this is episode number three in the series. And it's the first time that both Captain Quinn and Dr. Hynek experience something themselves. They're out in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. Captain Quinn is inside the car and Dr. Hynek is outside of the car when the car just starts going crazy. Lights are flashing. The radio's tuning frequencies. The entire car is shaking. And then a massive V-shaped crack with blue lights fly over and they both see it. Now, in the show, General Harding and General Valentine in the military give Quinn and Hynek the explanation that what they saw was a top-secret experimental craft that has a V-shaped wing. And they show some photos that look like they could be real from that time period. But despite this explanation, Dr. Hynek doesn't believe that this is true, doesn't really believe what the military is telling him. And so he's starting to get the sense that perhaps he's not getting the full story. And at the very end of episode three, we see him writing in his notebook, he writes, possible government cover-up. Was the series correct in showing that Dr. Hynek started to have experiences of his own that he couldn't explain around the time of the Lubbock Lights? And did he start to suspect that he wasn't being fed the full story from the Air Force? Hynek, as far as I know, never witnessed a UFO while investigating any cases during Project Blue Book. There's a really great biography of him called The Close Encounters Man by Mark O'Connell. And in it, he talks about a sighting that he may have had while looking through a telescope. He claimed he saw like a strange object fly over the face of the moon or something like that. But he never had an overt UFO experience during his time. In regards to what the Air Force was letting him in on, Heineck was the one of the people that was on the inside. So they never really kept anything from him. If anything, he knew things that he couldn't really talk about. In 1953, there was a CIA-led panel called the Robertson Panel, which basically came in. The reason why they came in, will it'll be coming up later in the, in the line of questioning, and then it pertains to an episode, like the last episode in the season. But they came in, they assessed the work of Project Blue Book, and they basically determined that like Project Grudge, they had to now downplay reports 
in order to keep the public calm. So in order to prevent mass hysteria, they were going to have to misidentify things. And essentially, Project Blue Book from 1953 onwards became Project Grudge all over again. But Heineck was there. He was doing the best that he could. He couldn't really come forward and say what he wanted or he would be losing access to the Project Blue Book files, which at the time were the best place to get UFO files from. There weren't civilian organizations as of yet. They would pop up not long after, but essentially in 53, that was a turning point for Heineck where he started to change from this total skeptic there to debunk reports to, okay, now I'm being told that I can't do my job properly. I don't like this, so I don't really trust the CIA at this point. He would essentially go through this metamorphosis over time where he would become a believer in the phenomenon. So the way that they kind of depict it in the show, his turn doesn't happen that quickly. But it does happen over time. Okay, yeah, it sounds like they, again, we see this a lot in movies and TV shows where they simplified it. It sounds like they just gave him an experience instead of trying to explain the CIA panel and all of these other aspects, perhaps. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the Lubbock Lights photographs are real photographs. I do believe the ones that they show in the actual episode are the real Lubbock Light photographs. and. That case took place in early 51. That was during the transitionary period from when Rupelt was coming in. But uh, that was a case that stumped a lot of people. There were scientists that studied it. And the individual that actually took the photographs, he was a student, I do believe, at one of the universities. They took these photographs over a couple different nights, but they essentially show a group of lights in an arrow type shape passing over the skies of Lubbock, Texas. It's a really fascinating case. And go look up those photos online. They're fun. In the in the show, don't they pass it off as possibly a, a, a flock of birds or something like that reflecting off lights? Was that a natural reason that was thrown around there as one of the possibilities? Yeah, that was an actual reason that investigators pinned. They did end up doing a test and taking photographs. And what happened was you could see one speck of light from one bird. There wasn't enough reflection to actually pick it up. So it's not clear exactly what the Lubbock lights were. They actually traveled quite fast. They determined when they flew over them that they were traveling at somewhere near 1,800 miles an hour. So pretty sure birds can't do that. <laughs> not any birds that I've come across. <laughs> I hope not, at least. That would be a, it's a, it's a fast flying bird. That is a fast, fast flying bird. <laughs> well, the, the next episode, uh, episode number four, brings in Operation Paperclip. And this is when we're introduced to Werner von Braun. He is a former Nazi who built the V-2 rocket, and post-World War II, he's heading up America's space program. So Dr. Quinn and, or I'm sorry, Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn get a first-hand look at Von Braun's work as they think that maybe one of the UFOs that they're investigating is just one of his rockets, and it's a top-secret rocket. So during this, on the show, Von Braun pulls Dr. Hynek aside and offers him a job to work with him, but Dr. Hynek doesn't trust the former Nazi, uh, I wonder why, but then uh, 
regardless, uh, Von Braun tells Dr. Hynek that he can't explain the sightings. He knows about them, but he can't explain them. And then at the end of the episode, we see Von Braun overseeing a test with an American pilot being forced into a giant flying saucer. And as the saucer starts to take off, there's some massive rings rotating around it. Obviously, you know, we have some effects going on there. And then, you know, just poof, it just disappears. And Von Braun simply says, it worked. Like, he's not, the show is implying that he's working on a lot more than just rockets. Uh, Can you give us an overview of Operation Paperclip? And did Project Blue Book cross with Paperclip and, and take Dr. Hynek to meet up with Werner von Braun? For Operation Paperclip, uh, basically, as World War II was winding down, American, British, and Russian forces were bracing to scour Germany for military resources, technological advances, and anything that they could get their hands on that the Germans may have created. The Germans at the time were known for really high technological advances, especially in rocketry. The Allies actually discovered a list called the Ozenberg List that contained the names of every single scientist that had worked for the Third Reich. Funny enough, they found it in a toilet, so (laughs) take that for what you will. The Allies essentially tracked down 1,600 scientists and brought them to America. The OSS expunged their records, so they were basically given a clean slate, asked to work for the government, And the most infamous individual was uh, Werner von Braun, and he is basically the father of modern rocketry. He designed the V-2 rocket, and he was instrumental for us in the space race. He pretty much got us to the moon. I got to say, Dan, I didn't really expect to find anything because I didn't think that Heineck had done anything with V-2 rockets or had met Werner von Braun, but... uh, You brought out the best of me, Dan, so I got to thank you for that. Um, Now, I discovered this blog post on, I think it was Ohio MUFON's website. And let me tell you, this website looks like it's from the 90s. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It was written by J. Allen Hynek's secretary, a woman named Jenny Ziedman. Apparently, Hynek worked on V-2 rockets while at White Sands Missile Range after the war. He had allegedly met Werner von Braun at that time, but nobody has ever come forward with this information. Like, it's not even in his biography. Even Hynek's closest friends do not know anything about this. So, uh, yeah, apparently he may have worked on V-2 rockets at one point. That's new information to me, man. So good job on that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No. It, I mean, you, they're two high-profile characters. I mean, I'm I'm not intimately familiar with von Braun, but he's the face of the U.S. after the war, getting a lot of of Nazi scientists to to work on American technology. And for me, he was always kind of the face of that. So when I saw them together on the show, I knew that was something I had to ask. Like. Did they actually meet each other? Is this just a show having two names that people might recognize and have using it as an excuse to put those two together? Right. Yeah. And apparently they did cross paths at one point. Speaking of crossing paths with names, I'm going to ask you a, a, another one here because in the show, there's one point where Dr. Hynek tells Captain Quinn, as, you know, he doesn't trust Von Braun and he's like, you know, how do you make a Nazi look legitimate? You have Walt Disney, give him his own special and beam him right into your living room. 
and we see this happen on the show. Did Von Braun and Walt Disney actually team up for a TV special? Oh, yeah, a number of times. The first time was on an episode of what they called Disneyland back at that time. Today, you would know it as the wonderful world of Disney. He appeared on screen to talk about plans for the American government to go to the moon. He would also appear in a number of Disney specials after that. So Werner von Braun was the face early on for the space race. So, yeah, he definitely did team up with uh, Walt Disney a time or two. Okay, so moving on to the next episode. This is episode number five, and it's entitled Foo Fighters. And in this episode, we see that Lieutenant Fuller from the very first episode, he's back. And this time he's in a group of people who have experienced something similar to him, you know, lights in the sky, maybe not the exact same thing as him, but they're all similar experiences. And Captain Quinn explains the title of the show. He explains that during World War II, pilots would see lights that they couldn't explain and they called them Foo Fighters. That's why they, they named the episode that. But in the episode, Lieutenant Fuller and his group of experiencers show Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn the lights themselves. They bring out this contraption that they've built and they seem to be able to call the lights uh, to them. But Dr. Hynek is quick to dismiss these as just car truck headlights bouncing off the fog in the distance. They're not really calling them to them. And then at the end of the episode, Dr. Hynek runs across Fuller at a secret hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that's now abandoned. And Dr. Hynek shows Fuller something. And almost immediately, Fuller douses himself in gasoline and sets himself on fire. Now, after this, the show cuts to General Harding and General Valentine. They're the very stereotypical secret government. They're just sitting around this table in you know very dark lit room and what you would expect for a, a secret military government, I guess. But they talk about how somebody or something must have flipped Fuller's off switch, whatever that means. Now, at, when I was watching this episode, it was one of the first episodes that I was thinking, you know, maybe this really wasn't based on something real. After all, the episode itself was claiming that Foo Fighters was a term used in World War II, and this is all after World War II. And so I just assumed that maybe this was the show stretching things, and, and I got the implication just watching the show that Dr. Hynek probably never actually investigated Foo Fighters because those were during World War II, and this is supposed to be happening after World War II. Or am I wrong there? Did he actually investigate Foo Fighters like we see in the show? He did not investigate Foo Fighters. He was really busy working on the proximity fuse by that time. But Foo Fighters were a real phenomenon during the war, and it was experienced by both Allied pilots and Axis pilots, and they both believed that this was technology from both sides being thrown at planes but that's kind of confusing because like uh clearly it's not none of them you know claimed responsibility for it and if we're talking about like the germans the germans would totally take responsibility for that back in the day there, there's no way that they wouldn't heineck never investigated the foo fighters there wasn't really a lot of resources to investigate the foo fighters at the time there was a brief investigation done by American forces, but they couldn't come to any definitive conclusion. Now, Dr. Hynek, he was working on that proximity fuse, which 
I do believe Time Magazine ranked it as the third best innovation to come from the Second World War. Hmm. What, what is the proximity fuse? It's a fuse that sends out radio waves. And when the radio waves bounce off something and come back and that signal gets shorter and shorter, the bomb basically explodes realistically you see that same technology in like noise cancellation headphones now interesting well we have dr heineck to thank for that yeah (laughs) in the show when we see lieutenant fuller his off switch flipped or whatever happens there and he it's a very tragic death that you know he sets himself on fire but if his experience was based on a pilot named gorman i believe you said Was that essentially what happened to Gorman? No, uh, there's not a lot known about Gorman, but he seemingly lived a normal life after the Gorman dogfight. He served in the uh, forces for a little bit longer and then went off and did his own thing. Okay, it's just the, the show trying to wrap everything all together then, it sounds like. Yep. Okay, well, the next investigation in the show covers... Green fireballs. They're sighted over a nuclear testing ground, and Project Blue Book is called in to verify that these are, in fact, meteors, a perfectly natural explanation. But something happens during the investigation, and Dr. Hynek sees the fireballs in the sky himself, and they are very clearly not meteors. Now, with another super secretive character on screen, a man that is simply cast, I had to look him up afterwards. He just to see if he had an actual name, but they just call him The Fixer. (laughs) He shows up, and Dr. Hynek theorizes out loud that perhaps the green fireballs are some sort of craft monitoring our nuclear testing sites, because that's where they were seen. Can you give us an overview of the the real event that this episode is based on and what Dr. Hynek's reaction was to it? Sure. In November of 1948, reports started to trickle in out in the west of of the phenomenon known as green fireballs. They were at first quickly dismissed as green military flares, but on the night of December 5th, 1948, two separate plane crews, one military and one civilian in New Mexico, each attested to seeing a green fireball while in the air. Each of them described the object resembling a green meteor, but ruled out meteors when the object basically abruptly it turned up and then leveled off, which I've never heard of a meteor doing. But, uh, you know, those fancy meteors, they just do what they want these days. (laughs) Well, you've never heard of birds that fly that fast either. So, no. (laughs) So uh, three days after that sighting on the 8th, two Air Force Office of Special Investigations pilots witnessed similar phenomena while they were in the air, and they described it as resembling a military flare, but it was too big and it was a lot brighter. And then four days after that, a man by the name of Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, he was an astronomer with the University of New Mexico, had his own sighting of the green fireballs. A lot of people were seeing them in and around military bases in New Mexico, mostly. He basically was able to triangulate their position over Los Alamos National Laboratory. And in a letter to the Air Force, he stated that it could not be a meteor because it was traveling too slow at the time and it didn't have a tail coming off of it. Those sightings would continue from November of 1948 until April of 1949. 
most of them were centered in New Mexico. Now, Dr. La Paz was tasked by the government to study the phenomenon, so it wasn't carried out by this would have been Project Grudge at this point. But the military was growing concerned that this was a foreign weapon, which could, you know, would make sense for them. It seems weapon like. So a lot of their top secret projects were also conducted in New Mexico. So it makes sense that they would be interested in it. And there were also similar objects sighted over nuclear storage areas in Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, Dr. La Paz determined that whatever these objects were, they were not natural. Most of the sightings were centered, yeah, really in Los Alamos National Laboratory. And many of the staff there he interviewed, and many of them claimed to see these green fireballs. Now, the sightings would become more sporadic after April of 49, but they still continued on to the point where in December of 1950, the government decided to set up an instrument observation station at Holloman Air Force Base. And it was only manned by two officers, but it, they uh, classified this project as Project Twinkle. <laughs> so La Paz had other ideas. He felt like this deserved a more rigorous study. And ultimately, when the government was done in 1950, they would downplay the sightings in their final report. But the sightings still continued on after that for a little while. Every witness that saw them claimed that it could not have been a natural phenomenon, which is, you know, rare because you're talking about trained observers, scientists, and the such. Another fun fact about Dr. La Paz, he had an earlier UFO sighting in 1947, and it was in Roswell, New Mexico. So he may have witnessed the actual Roswell craft crash, maybe. I don't know. But that's uh, just an interesting little tidbit there. But, um, Heineck, uh, we're not really sure of what Heineck thought about these. We've never gotten any comments from him about it. And the investigation wasn't carried out by Project Sign or Grudge. It was something that the government was trying to keep under wraps. So, uh, yeah, not really sure what Heineck thought there. Do we know if there were many other cases like that that were outside of Project Sign or Grudge or, or Blue Book? I guess. I'm assuming that those projects were the official government investigation, and it sounds like this one was an off-the-books, not really, I mean, official, but not really official, if that makes sense, you know, in that way, uh, to kind of not throw it in with all the others. Were there a lot of other cases like that that we know of? Not really. There isn't a lot of declassified information that I've ever come across that really points to additional government studies, though Heineck later in his career, after really Project Blue Book was shuttered, he would make these comments that he was like the public face of like the UFO investigations, but he always made it seem like there was something else going on behind the scenes that the public didn't know. So there's a possibility that there are projects that we don't even know about. Well, moving on to the next episode, we're up to episode number seven, and we come across the first hoax in the series, and according to the show, it's with a Boy Scout troop leader who claims to see a UFO, and even claims to shoot at it and hit the alien that comes out of the craft, and for some time, the scoutmaster disappears, but then 
he staggers back into town just as Dr. Hynek is in- explaining that the lights that they saw were caused by swamp gas. Before long, though, Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn are able to figure out that the town's sheriff sent a telegram to Hollywood about having proof about the flying saucer story. And that happened before the scoutmaster came back into town with that proof. So it would seem that the sheriff and the scoutmaster were in on this, trying to make a bunch of money on uh, what clearly was a hoax, trying to sell the movie rights. Did this hoax really happen the way that we see in the show? Oh, man, this is one of my all-time favorite cases. This is a really fun one. This is the case of a Florida scoutmaster by the name of Sonny Divergers. On August 19th, 1952, Divergers was driving a group of Boy Scouts home when he saw a bright light flash over a trail called Military Trail near West Palm Beach, Florida. He thought it could have been a stranded motorist or a plane that had gone down, so he pulled over onto the shoulder and basically went in to investigate. He told the three boys that he was driving home to remain in the car, and he basically took a machete and a flashlight with him, and he instructed the boys to run to the farmhouse that was nearby if he didn't come back in 15 minutes. From the car, the boys claimed that they could see like a ring of lights descending into a grove of trees. Um, And they could also see uh, Diverger's flashlight as well. And when they saw that his flashlight had gone out, the boys ran to the farmhouse. And soon an officer arrived on scene and they were about to commence a search. It had been an hour or so, but Diverger's emerged from the uh, palmettos and was frantically waving his machete in the air and just like raving like a madman. But according to his testimony, he had been searching for about four minutes when he started to smell this nauseating odor. He also said that he felt like he was being watched and he next claimed to feel this really intense heat that was coming down from above him. And when he looked up, he could not see the stars above him. There was this object that was just hovering over him. He described it as a dull black object in the shape of a saucer, approximately 30 feet in diameter. Divergers moved back from the object, and when he did, he claimed to hear this metallic scraping sound. And when he looked up again, there was this hatch that was opened on the side of the object. He noticed a red light coming from the inside, and it soon developed into a mist that engulfed his body. The Vergers lost consciousness not long after that, and he woke up a short time later, and he was propped up against a tree, but he couldn't really remember propping himself up against a tree, and his eyes were apparently so burned that he couldn't see out of them. The Vergers underwent questioning with the local police, and they had noticed that the hairs on his arms were actually singed. They also went back to the area of where it where it occurred, and they discovered burnt patches of grass on the ground. When Project Blue Book was notified, Edward Ruppelt went to investigate. He took samples and then had them tested. They found that the soil had only been burnt at the top, so whatever had happened to them, it wasn't some kind of natural rot from underneath it or anything like that. But Ruppelt would come to call this entire case a hoax, and in fact, he would call Divergers the best hoaxer that he'd ever seen. 
he was painted as media hungry and also an opportunist willing to sell his story. But problem was, is that they were never able to explain how he did it. They were never able to explain the burnt patches of grass. Like they couldn't explain anything that this guy did. They just eh, hoax. Okay. So even after the investigation, they're just like, we're not going to even bother to try to figure out exactly what happened here. Just assume that he's, he's hoaxing it, huh? Those kind of cases, and they were very rare at the time. Diverger's case is something very extreme. It's on the level of a Flatwoods monster kind of incident. The government didn't really want to get involved with cases like that. And you would see from time to time that if they were reported, they would downplay them almost immediately. So, yeah, the government really didn't want to talk about weird cases like that. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I'm curious, though, because one of the things that we see in the show, I uh, mentioned it very briefly, but uh, is when Dr. Heineck, when he's explaining the lights, he uses that says it was uh, caused by swamp gas. And that's I have to ask about that because it's something that I'm familiar with from uh, the movie Men in Black, of course, because they use that as an explanation of, you know, oh, it's swamp gas. You know, that's pretty much the explanation for UFOs. I think it's something that's kind of caught on in popular culture as a common explanation for UFOs. Was that really an explanation that started with Project Blue Book? It mostly started with Heineck. One of the most infamous investigations that he did occurred in Michigan in 1966 in the Dexter Hillsdale area. For approximately a week, sightings had been taking place in that area. It began on uh, March 14th of 66. The police in Washtenaw County first witnessed strange lights in the sky over Lima Township. And they chased these lights for a period of time, but they were outmaneuvered every single time they tried. And throughout the week, people in Washtenaw County reported seeing similar objects in the sky. Some went on to report them as resembling like a spinning top. But the culmination of these sightings occurred two nights later that week. On March 20th, Frank Manor of Dexter Township reportedly saw a strange object in the swamp behind his home, he described it resembling a pyramid with a porthole on it from which this bluish green light was emitting. And then the next night at nearby Hillsdale College, over 80 female students witnessed a strange light rising and falling in a swamp near their dorm. Heineck was sent to investigate that case and was basically forced to conduct a rushed investigation. He didn't have a lot of time and was forced to give a press conference. One of the witnesses in that case had mentioned that at first, because they ended up witnessing what the girls did at the college dorm room in Hillsdale, believed it to be at first swamp gas, which is a real phenomenon. Basically, what happens in a swamp is when vegetation is dying, it will release methane into the air and sometimes you'll basically see like a, a short flash of light that it creates. So Heineck basically was forced to say that what happened in Dexter Hillsdale was swamp gas, and he was ridiculed heavily for it. And in fact, it was his determination on that case that really shuttered Project Blue Book toward the end because what happened was, I believe he was governor at the time, Gerald Ford, he was not happy with the determination that Heineck came to and basically ordered for a panel, an independent panel 
of people to investigate UFO sightings. And this led to the Condon Committee, a uh, group of scientists out of the University of Colorado that studied UFOs for a couple of years and ultimately determined that UFOs were not a threat to national security. In fact, they couldn't determine what they were at all. And um, that was the end of Project Blue Book. So the swamp gas thing is essentially Dr. Hynek's probably most fumbling move during his time at Project Blue Book. Well, going back to the TV show, the next investigation that we see, when I was when I was watching this, it really started to turn the entire series a little more sinister in my mind. It gave the idea that the military is trying to cover up some psychological tests that they're doing on their own soldiers. We see a group of army soldiers who got a UFO attack on the platoon on film. And we're watching this. Dr. Hynek is watching this and the, and the military is watching this. And that's what kicks off the investigation. But then in the end, we find out that the soldiers were shell-shocked from experiences in World War II. And at the end of the episode, there's a scene where the two generals, Harding and Valentine, are upset that the Secretary of Defense has been testing chemical weapons on their own soldiers. How much of that actually happened? This incident is based on testimony from a private first class named Francis P. Wall. During the Korean War, this is like one of the most harrowing tales that you will ever hear. And there's some really messed up stories from soldiers during war about UFOs and, and such. And um, Wall was stationed near Chorwon, which uh, is, was roughly 60 miles from Seoul. And his regiment was prepared to bombard a nearby village with artillery. Right before the attack was set to take place, this UFO appeared in the sky right above the village. And they just started firing off artillery burst after artillery burst. There were shells that exploded right next to this object, but it didn't seem to take a hit. At the time, the object was emitting an orange light, and it just was hovering over the village. That's when Wall basically asked his commander for permission to fire at this thing. When permission was granted, everybody opened fire. The object changed to a blue-green color, and it started to make these eerie arcs in the sky. And then it started to shoot beams at these people. They all reported feeling a burning and tingling sensation as the beams of light were shown at them and were all forced into underground bunkers at the time. They had to take refuge from what this, whatever this thing was. Most of the men were trucked out by ambulance. They were actually too weak to walk. And doctors, once they got back to a hospital, noted how all of their white blood cell counts were really high. They never explained what happened to these men. Some have pointed to like a Soviet weapons test, but even that's kind of out of the realm of possibility, even for me. As far as we know, it wasn't a government chemical weapons test, but I wouldn't put it past the government to have done that at any point in history. The government has done some shady stuff in the past. If you want a, uh, a good example of that, there's a book that came out last year. It's called Poisoner in Chief, and it's all about one scientist's work during a project called MK Ultra. 
he was basically tasked with seeing what if they could use LSD as a form of mind control. It was a very is a very dark project for the government. So I really wouldn't put it past it at any point for the government to have done tests like that. There was the Tuskegee experiment, which I really don't want to get into because it was some pretty sick stuff. But yeah, I, I really wouldn't put it past the government to have done tests like that at some point. Wow. Well, let's get back to the show then instead of getting even darker. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in episode nine, Dr. Hynek and Captain Quinn come across their first abduction case. And this is the case of someone named Thomas Mann, who claims that he was abducted by aliens. And there's a few key things from that episode of the show that I want to get your insight on. First is during this episode is when we see Dr. Hynek hypnotize Thomas to help him remember more about the abduction experience. Now, through hypnosis, Thomas is able to remember things that he couldn't remember otherwise. And when I saw this, it hit me that this is similar to what we talked about when we covered the movie Communion, when you were a guest on the show to talk about Whitley Strieber's experience there. And when I was watching uh, Project Blue Book, I got the idea that nobody was really familiar with using hypnosis in that way when he's using this on, on Thomas Mann. So was Dr. Hynek using hypnosis in his investigations and was he one of the first to do that for abductees so this episode is loosely based on the betty and barney hill incident which is an incident that we recently covered on a two-part episode essentially this new hampshire couple reported having a close encounter with a strange object within the white mountains at one point barney had this dramatic sighting in a field uh, of this object through a pair of binoculars. He claimed to have telepathic communication with the occupants of this UFO. And they also claimed to have uh, suffered from missing time during this encounter too. There was a period of time that they just couldn't account for. They started to conduct their own investigation almost immediately after coming home. And they read books voraciously, talked to experts you know, from scientists to UFO investigators until they ultimately decided that they wanted to explore their experiences through hypnosis. And they ultimately found this individual named Dr. Benjamin Simon. He was a Boston-based hypnotherapist and through their work with him uncovered an abduction narrative that involved the Hills being taken on board a UFO, subjected to medical tests, and then returned to their car. Now, Dr. Benjamin Simon was a pretty heavy hitter when it came to hypnosis. He set up a hospital on, I believe it was Long Island, to treat soldiers coming home from World War II with all sorts of uh, mental problems, basically treating soldiers with PTSD before PTSD was known as anything. And he would use hypnosis to do that. Dr. Simon was the first to hypnotize an abduction witness. Uh, Hynek didn't really do that. He did advocate for it in a couple of cases, but he was uh, not a trained hypnotist in any way. The uh, Probably the most infamous person to start doing this within the UFO community was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Leo Sprinkle. He used hypnosis on a number of uh, witnesses, uh, and then... Later on in the 80s, a man by the name of Bud Hopkins, he was a uh, New York-based artist. He 
kind of put abduction cases on the map in the 80s by conducting hypnosis sessions and uh, working with uh, experiencers. So, uh, yeah, Dr. Hynek never practiced hypnosis in any way. Okay. So it sounds like, again, they're taking something from kind of the overall phenomenon and finding a way to fit it into the story, even if it's not actually the way it went. Yeah, absolutely. Something else I want to ask you about with that uh, episode was when we see Dr. Hynek talk about this a scale that he's been working on. He calls it a close encounter of the first kind, close encounter of the second kind. That's what happened to Thomas there, abduction, and then close encounter of the third kind being even beyond that. And that's a term that I think we're familiar with if from nothing else, the movie. Was that a scale that Dr. Hynek invented? Yeah, Dr. Hynek did invent that scale. It's what we call the uh, Hynek scale these days. Uh, there were actually six classifications. The first was a nocturnal light, which is basically your mundane sighting of a UFO at night. And then there is what he called the daylight disc, which is a sighting of an object during the day from more than 1,000 feet away. Then there is a radar visual sighting, which uh, is primarily you know, witnessed by civilians and military pilots. It's basically when a pilot sees something and it's confirmed by radar data. And then uh, we get to the heavy hitters. Close encounter of the first kind is a sighting of an object from approximately 1,000 feet away or less. Close encounter of the second kind is a sighting uh, where an object leaves a physical trace of some kind. So in the Florida Scoutmaster case, there was the burnt grass. And even in the Betty and Barney Hill case, there was really strange readings that they got from their car on the back trunk. They noticed these semi these circles about a half dollar size that they don't know where they where it came from. They ended up testing the trunk with a compass, and they found that it was magnetized. So that was a physical trace case. Uh, and then the close encounter of the third kind is when an object is an object is seen, and an occupant of that object is seen. So some kind of humanoid being is seen at the same time. And the interesting thing about the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind is that when Steven Spielberg was working on that and he wanted to use that title, he actually had to go through J. Allen Hynek because that was his copyrighted title. So J. Allen Hynek ended up consulting on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and he even has a cameo at the end. Nice. I'll have to watch that again and and look for him. I don't remember... Because I don't know that I would be able to pick them out without finding a photo. But <laughs> here's here's the uh, hint that I'll give you: look for the man with the healthy Van Dyke. You will notice him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, at the very end of episode nine in the TV show, Doctor Hannett gives he's he's given a head up by that mysterious fixer guy that something's going to happen in Washington D.C. So he flies there just in time to see a show of lights over D.C. Now, in the show, this happens in the middle of the day, and then later, Defense Secretary Fairchild, he was the one who was doing the chemical testing on the soldiers uh, that we saw in an earlier episode. He's killed as his car bursts into flame just before he's about to reveal the truth to the world. And then, meanwhile, we see that lights come back, military scrambles, some F-94s to respond, but they have trouble keeping up with the objects as they're flying around Washington, D.C., and at the very end of the episode, which is the end of the season, 
Dr. Hynek tells Captain Quinn that he's come to the realization that the only way they'll be able to find the truth is to keep the jobs that give them access to information in more cases, but to convince the government that they don't believe, because that's clearly what the higher-ups want. They're given this cover-up. So we get the sense that Dr. Hynek is pretty much just going to play the game and keep trying to find the truth. So how well did the TV show explain the lights over Washington, D.C., and what happened to Dr. Hynek and Project Blue Book after this? So 1952 was a big year for UFO sightings in the United States. Three incidents covered in the first season of the show happened in 1952. The Flatwoods Monster case, the Florida Scoutmaster case, and the most significant of them, which was a pair of incidents that came to be known as the Washington Merry-Go-Round, as uh, Edward Ruppelt would call it. In July of that year, and over the course of two weekends, objects were seen by numerous eyewitnesses over and kind of outside Washington, D.C. The first major incident took place on July 21st. Just outside the city, pilots and radar personnel reported objects nearby. A pilot by the name of Casey Pierman of Flight 807 described the object resembling a falling star without a tail on it. And then on the 28th, objects were sighted again over Washington, D.C. This time, the Air Force scrambled jets to chase them down, but the objects outmaneuvered them very easily. And Ruppelt was summoned at the time by President Harry S. Truman for an explanation. But Ruppelt hadn't been able to conduct an investigation at that point, and he didn't have answers for, for them. So ultimately, they rushed to call a press conference and quickly quelled all the excitement. The government blamed it on weather. Yep, that's right, weather. But it's basically because of this incident that the Robertson panel, which I mentioned previously, led by the CIA, was convened and then ultimately decided that UFO reports had to be downplayed. Edward Ruppelt would leave a Project Blue Book by the end of 1953 because of it. He ended up retiring. He wrote the first really landmark book about his time on Project Sign and Project Blue Book. It was called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. He actually died very young uh, at the age of, I believe, 37 of a heart attack. So. I think they did a good job of playing up the hysteria aspect that the government was generally operating under. The nature of cover-ups when it comes to this phenomenon and when it comes to UFO history, it's this question of, you know, you're tackling this question of whether they downplayed reports to keep the public calm or because the government was hiding something that they had. And it's never really ever been cleared up, but I've always leaned towards the government was just trying to keep the public calm. I don't think the government really has any definitive information about this stuff, but you never know. I could be wrong. The government could come out and say, you know, we got aliens hanging out at Area 51. I don't know. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in, in that episode, which is episode 10, when we see in the show, his name is Secretary Fairchild, the the defense secretary, when he dies of 
very suspicious circumstances. That led me to think that maybe there was it was based on somebody that might have died in similar circumstances that they showed that so plainly there. Was that based on something that actually happened? Secretary Fairchild is based on the first Secretary of Defense, James V. Forrestal. Forrestal died in 1949, well before the Washington merry-go-round, but he died under very mysterious circumstances. He was receiving treatment at the Bethesda Military Hospital in Maryland for a mental breakdown, and his body was found having fallen from a great height from his hospital room. It's unclear if he committed suicide or if he was actually just thrown from the window, but his death has been lumped into conspiracies involving a group that most likely didn't investigate UFOs, but was an actual group within the government, and uh, they were called Majestic 12. Most point to Majestic 12 as a group that essentially were studying the effects of radiation after bomb tests, but many have lumped them into this government conspiracy where they were essentially trying to keep the proof of extraterrestrial life from the public, and many believe that Forrestal was killed uh, because he wanted to come forward and tell the public about extraterrestrial life being real and, and having visited us. So kind of darker, a little darker in the real, in the real sense of uh, what happened to Forrestal here. Yeah, it sounds like it. One thing that we didn't get to cover that I just want to ask you about real quick is a storyline that goes throughout the entire show. And that's the character of Susie Miller and, in the show, while Dr. Hynek is off on his investigations, it cuts back to home life with Mimi, his wife, a lot. And we get this sense that uh, the character of Susie is a Russian spy of some sort. We hear some uh, her speaking in Russian over the radio to someone with her quote-unquote husband, which we know is not really her husband. We get the feeling that it's not really her husband, but that's what she introduces him as. And we get the overall idea that they're probably Russian spies trying to infiltrate Project Blue Book through Dr. Hynek's wife. Was there any truth to that side of the whole show? Not really. There was no real indications that the Russians were trying to infiltrate Project Blue Book. But interestingly enough, uh, Annie Jacobson, who wrote a book about Area 51, has this theory that the Roswell crash was a Russian craft designed to basically cause mass hysteria. What she points to is that her source claims that Joseph Stalin really got a kick out of the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. <laughs> so he he said uh, her theory is that he essentially wanted to cause mass hysteria in that kind of way. Of course, it didn't pan out that way. Uh, Roswell was a case that was shuttered for over 30 years before anybody really started to know that anything had crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. So, yeah, not not really. There there was no real attempt by the Russians to infiltrate this program. Hmm, Interesting. I never heard of that uh, that possible theory about Stalin there. But thank you so much for coming on a chat about Project Blue Book. I know we didn't cover season two, 
that much on this episode as we're recording this. The season's still ongoing, but you'll have to come back on once that season is over and chat about whatever the events are that we see there. Oh, absolutely, man. I'd love to. In the meantime, if you're listening to this, Rob has an awesome podcast that covers a lot of UFO-related events and history. Go open up the app that you're listening to this on and subscribe to Rob's podcast called Our Strange Skies. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your podcast and some of the great stories that you cover over there? Sure. So for a long time, I had the impetus to cover uh, singular UFO stories, and I had seen that nobody really did it. And a lot of podcasters just kept coming to me for like content. They just like, hey, what's a good UFO case to cover? And I'm like, I'd usually give them something, but I'm like, why don't I just make a podcast of my own? So (laughs) I created the Our Strange Skies podcast, and we've been through a a couple of transformations. But right now, what we do is we devote singular episodes, or if some require multi-part episodes, to UFO stories throughout history uh, from the United States. We've covered stories from Brazil and a few other places, but uh, we just covered the Betty and Barney Hill incident, uh, the Lonnie Zabora incident, which is another famous uh, New Mexico UFO sighting. We covered the first abduction case, which was, occurred in 1957 in Brazil, and there's a lot of great episodes over there. So uh, yeah, it, it, if you want to know more about UFOs, come on over to the Our Strange Guys podcast. We got plenty for you. And you started a new show recently too, right? Yes, uh, it's called The Coda, a music podcast. And every other week, I'm joined by my buddy Brian Hasty of the Double Density Podcast. And we discuss music news. And we generally have a main feature, a main topic where we discuss something from music. We've talked about our favorite opening tracks to an album. We've talked about our best albums of 2019. And we recently had a couple of guests on to talk about a new album that they dropped. So uh, if you're interested in music talk, check out the Dakota, a music podcast. Awesome. Thanks again so much for your time, Rob. Well, thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Rob Christofferson for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the TV show Project Blue Book. If you want to learn more about the stories and the history behind the UFO phenomena, go subscribe to Rob's podcast called Our Strange Skies. And while you're at it, don't forget about his other show, The Coda. It doesn't really have anything to do with history or UFOs, but really you should still go check it out and support Rob's work. And of course, if you're driving and unable to head over there right now, I'll make sure to add a link to Rob's podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Project Blue Book was the first time the U.S. government investigated unidentified flying objects. Number two, former Nazi scientist Werner von Braun teamed up with Walt Disney to promote the American space program after World War II. Number three, Dr. Hynek made a cameo appearance in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was named after the scale that he came up with. Did you find out which one is a lie?
Let's start with number two. Former Nazi scientist Werner von Braun teamed up with Walt Disney to promote the American space program after World War II. Is that true? Or is that the lie? That is true. Werner von Braun led the V-2 rocket program for Nazi Germany during World War II. After the war, he came to the United States and was appointed as the face of the American space program as it was just getting off the ground. As part of their public relations program, Von Braun teamed up with Walt Disney himself in some TV specials that you can still find online today. That brings us to number three. Dr. Hynek made a cameo appearance in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was named after the scale he came up with. That is true. As Rob explained, the name of the film came from the Hynek scale, Close Encounter of the First Kind, the Second Kind, and so on. So when Steven Spielberg got permission to use the scale from Hynek, Hynek himself was hired as a consultant for the film. That means the lie is number one. Project Blue Book was the first time the U.S. government investigated unidentified flying objects. As Rob explained, before Project Blue Book, there were a couple other programs called Project Sign and Project Grudge that investigated what we now know as UFOs. Although, to be fair, I think Project Blue Book is probably one of the more popular of the projects to investigate UFOs, thanks in no small part to Dr. Hynek's involvement. That just about wraps up our time today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or who have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time and effort goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said... Today's episode took a total of 26 hours to create and cost $39.42 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear, that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest's time researching the subject matter that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also does not account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For example, based on a true story podcast.com doesn't include any of the costs to create that website, to maintain that website. It also doesn't cost or doesn't include any of the time to maintain that website when there's updates that need to happen or posting the episode on that website or updating that website doesn't include any of that. It's just the production of this one episode. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, I really hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a bonus, you will get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Not only that, but you'll also help keep Base on a True Story alive. We're up to over 40 minisodes and well over 20 hours of bonus content that is exclusive to supporters who want to help keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. That time and effort that it takes to create these episodes, 
Well, that has to come from somewhere. And like you, I have bills to pay as well. So that money has to come from somewhere. If you want to help keep Based on a True Story alive and kicking, then I would really appreciate that support. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. If social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>